0: This is At the Core of Care, a podcast where people share their stories about nurses and their creative efforts to better meet the health and healthcare needs of patients, families, and communities. I'm Sarah Hexum Hubbard, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition and the National Nurse-Led Care Consortium. This episode is the first of a two-part series about emergency public health preparedness for community health centers and the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic so far. On part one, we're gonna hear about the pandemic's impact on callen Lord a major New York City community health organization that specializes in LGBTQ healthcare.
1: callen Lord really is not only a place for people to get their medical care and their behavioral health care and their medications and care coordination needs, but because a lot of the people who work here, you know, are members of the LGBTQ community and it's a safe place. And for some people, one of the only safe places they feel that they can go it really provides a very special community feeling for people and so telling people during this time when there's just so much anxiety that they can't come to the place where they feel comfortable was really difficult and I think it was really really hard for people to wrap their minds around that.
0: And then on part two we'll hear about the Connecticut River Valley Farmworker Health Program and how this community health initiative has had to pivot to provide care and step up education outreach about the pandemic.
1: It was just a question of how to be strategic in providing care safely. Some of the farm workers are coming from countries with much lower case burden than we have here and we want to make sure that we're not increasing their risk by coming out to the farms. But also, while telehealth is a huge part of our practice right now, there are limitations to it. And I think that in the case of a lot of the farm workers that we're seeing, there may be difficulty with technology access, technology literacy potentially, and also just difficulty accessing healthcare.
0: With 12,000 community health centers nationwide, these safety net organizations play a key role in our healthcare system, but have traditionally been under-resourced. And in terms of emergency public health preparedness, the needs gap is even starker, as we've been learning through our initiatives here at NNCC.
2: NNCC have been working with some of our partners nationally to make emergency preparedness plans more readily accessible to health centers' communications plans and templates more readily accessible. One thing that was recognized early on when we did the needs assessment was that there were a lot of resources for hospital systems, very little resources for health centers and safety net clinics.
0: As part of NNCC's ongoing effort to provide comprehensive and evidence-based resources to community health centers, we are collaborating with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the National Network of Public Health Institutes. The work has consisted of consulting with content experts, health center staff, and stakeholders to create and adopt materials for health center utilization. Over this past year, we've focused on outreach and support for primary care associations, or PCAs, and the needs of staff in emergency management roles. As the COVID-19 pandemic took hold, we were able to activate this network and organize peer learning forums to provide PCAs and community health centers opportunities to discuss ongoing challenges and learn from each other. My colleague at NNCC, Christine Ganella, will be sharing her perspective with us later in the series about how community health centers are too often overlooked when it comes to emergency preparedness resources.
2: What you see, sort of in the news right now, is very focused on the social determinants of health that are directly impacting your most highly vulnerable and underserved populations. So, access to education, housing, you know, these are all things that make our patients already vulnerable. And then you add sort of the pandemic on top of that, and it adds another layer of vulnerability. And that's the space that community health centers sort of sit in. So they need to be well-prepared to not just sort of institutionally be able to continue their service delivery, but also then sort of deliver their service delivery to a community that is already coming in with more vulnerabilities than maybe another community is
0: we're going to spend the rest of this episode hearing from two public health professionals about what it's been like to work in a New York City community health organization during the COVID-19 pandemic and the specialized care they provide to the LGBTQ community.
1: I'm Lara Comstock. I am part of the nursing team at Callan Lord Community Health Center. My pronouns are she and they. We always knew something like this could happen. <laughs> you never inadequately prepare for what it feels like when it does. We definitely, um, you know, around the middle of March, we are sort of like on the edge, knowing that at any moment, our first patient with COVID could walk in the door. And so we're really preparing with trying to get our Procedures in place, getting our PPE in place. Like, what is an N95? <laughs> you know, <laughs> kind of like trying to read all the guidance and figure out how it was going to happen and what was going to be the cascade. But I don't think anything could have prepared us for, you know, how quickly things did happen. Definitely within a couple of weeks, we went from having 16 providers in our largest site down to two. And we basically were trying to just meet the most urgent needs, trying to communicate out to patients. Please don't walk in as you're used to doing. I mean, the other thing is Cal and Lord really is not only a place for people to get their medical care and their behavioral health care and their medications and care coordination needs, but because a lot of the people who work here, you know, are members of the LGBTQ community and it's a safe place and For some people, one of the only safe places they feel that they can go, it really provides a very special community feeling for people. And so telling people during this time when there's just so much anxiety that they can't come to the place where they feel comfortable is really difficult. And I think it was really, really hard for people to wrap their minds around that. And not only that, but you know, we were asking people to get their medications by delivery and Not everybody has an address to get medications delivered. We're asking people to do virtual visits. And not everybody has the desire to do that, the hardware to do that, the Wi-Fi to do that, the private space to do that. So it was uh, very difficult. And then some of our staff did become ill with covid and so we were trying to gauge that really on a daily basis. We started an occupational health program pretty quickly and they would and still continue to call people who are experiencing symptoms to check on them and really support them through that very scary time. And um, we started doing things, you know, like we had all staff meetings every single week, which we hadn't previously done. We had them like every quarter. We started using Zoom like nobody's business and uh, did, you know, Zoom meditation and yoga, things like that. So it was uh, definitely a very kind of dramatic time in many ways. And, you know, unfortunately, we did lose some patience during the pandemic. So like, you know, there's never it's hard to grieve, you know, and I, and staff members lost family members as well. And it was definitely a lot, head spinning, really. Here it is, August 2020. I feel like we're finally at a point where we're a little bit calmer. And, you know, we like completely almost disassembled the clinic or shrank it to a large degree. And then We had some people who were sick and had a lot of patients who were sick, and that was a lot. And then we, probably a couple months ago, in earnest, started really reassembling the clinic, and that was hectic in its own way and um, harder than, in some ways, breaking down is building back up again. So at this point, it's finally starting to feel a little bit calmer, but we're also sort of waiting for the the surge, the next surge. So planning for that and a little bit holding our breath for that, that's where I am.
3: I'm Simi Phillips and I'm a part of the nursing team at callen Lord. For me personally, COVID-19 has changed a lot of things in my personal life and the way I live my everyday routine. So it's been stressful. I mean, me and a few of the other nursing staff from callen Lord, we were You know, assigned a very different assignment, very fulfilling assignment, serving those who from other standpoints weren't able to get care in other places, housing and taking care of those who were tested and unfortunately positive for COVID with that, it's left a kind of a stain on the way I live my life and the way I see things. So even though like things are like calming down and you're able to leave your house a little more often for people like myself, I still second guess every decision. I still trying to learn how to cope with everything. I still haven't seen my parents. So just trying to maneuver everyday life and figure out where to go next and how to work the obstacles that are ahead of us. So, you know, just coping for me at this point, kind of, hard to like go back to it because it's it's just really changed a lot of things for a lot of the staff mentally you know I fortunately but unfortunately wasn't able to be there for a lot of my friends and you know you when you work with people closely they become your friends your family there was a lot of grieving there still is a lot of grieving there's still is a lot of healing from those who lost family members, lost close friends. The weight is still there. We're working hard to get through it, but looking at certain patients and we unfortunately we get these notifications sent to our email about certain ones who have passed on and not only go through your own struggles but to check your work email and to realize you've lost some of your favorite patients. They all our favorites, but, you know, you build relationships with certain patients and to come back on site and to do your best to try to help a grieving coworker who had lost close family members,
1: it's, it's
3: taken quite the toll.
1: Community health, primary care in general, one of the roles is to manage people's chronic health conditions. And so having kind of better resources to do that, you know, better preventive health means keeping people out of the hospital. And, you know, the hospitals certainly play a really important role, but community health, you know, there is no substitute for that. So, you know, things that came up during the beginning was, you know, there was just a a lack of a coordinated effort on a federal level, regarding things like, and it's still honestly still going on, (laughs) getting N95s is still a problem. We still can't get as many as we would like, and are having to, you know, reuse them, because we don't, you know, we order them and order them, and we don't know really when they're gonna come in. Surprise, maybe you'll get some someday. PPE is still an issue. And then things like equipment to do Virtual visits. And I would say, you know, honestly, that is not just for the staff, but for the patients. The patients sometimes don't have computers or smartphones or Wi Fi or any private area to do a virtual visit. And virtual visits can keep people safer in a certain way. So having the option to do that with people, be really important to the next wave to keeping people safe. Um, Virtual care should not just be for people who have that and can afford it. That's a huge glaring inequity. And then things like we don't have enough isolation rooms. You know, if, if multiple people came in with COVID, that would be really, really challenging and was challenging in the first wave. Testing is still an issue. You know, at the beginning, we did Test And then we stopped testing because the city told us to stop and that it should only happen in hospitals. And so we weren't able to test our patients. We are testing again, but it's still difficult to get testing kits and the turnaround time to results is still not that helpful to do contact tracing, you know, to contain the pandemic that way. It's also just like a, a bandwidth issue. We're all working really hard and pretty stressed and focused on taking care of patients. The planning part is just as important. So we're stretched thin. So, you know, resources just for keeping people on staff. The other thing I think is a huge issue is staff with children and that there's not really any coordinated effort to help and feels really difficult that There's not really a good solution and there's not a lot of help for parents out there. Mental
3: health accessibility at this point is very shorthand. You know, there's hotlines, they give you numbers to call, but with everything going on, there's such an increase of people needing and relying on mental health services that there really aren't many outlets available for people who may need someone to talk to depending on your mental state and where you are. As Laura said earlier, definitely the need of PPE. You know, There's a lot of us who are utilizing our mask and gowns much more than we probably should because of the shortages. But I would definitely say mental health. Before the pandemic, not that there are, was an abundance of providers available and open, but you had options. And with everything going on, I feel because the world itself is just in crisis with everything going on, it is very important to have those work family relationships, just not always for what you yourself can get mentally out of it, but sometimes just listening. Being there for your coworker, being there for your team, making yourself available, even if it's an extra 15 minutes out of your day. It's really helped being able to share experiences, team build, build each other up, just having each other's backs, being aware of certain signs of emotional distress. Some of us, it's not exactly easy to come out and say, hey, you know, I'm really down in this moment. Can you help me? But if you have a relationship with your work family, sometimes it's really easy to be able to key in on them needing you in that moment or just, like I said, just being around for them. Well, that's what's helped me through a lot of this, you know, sharing experiences with people who've been in the trenches with me, and who need me just as much as I need them.
1: We had about a hundred thousand visits or over that, actually, in 2019, and about 17,000 unique patients. We serve the LGBTQIA community in all its diversity and regardless of ability to pay. You know, we have really a, a wide diversity of patients and people come because of the LGBTQ sensitive care, I would say, and so people come from all walks of life and we have people even from other countries sometimes coming to our clinic. So we have um, two, We well, pre-pandemic, we had two sites in Chelsea and one site in the Bronx and we were planning to open a fourth site in Brooklyn right as the pandemic hit we actually got our site inspected and pretty much ready to go but then honestly we, we were having trouble getting supplies even for the clinic and <laughs> when we definitely were not able to open it in the time frame that we were going to open it but we were able to open it a couple months ago but then we also closed one of our sites in Chelsea because it didn't really make sense to keep it open and uh, we currently are again at three sites.
3: A little bit about our services within those three sites. We provide Article Twenty Eight and Thirty Two behavioral health. We're open right now at all of our locations, especially our Brooklyn and Bronx for primary care. We are still taking patients for our sexual health clinic for those who are in need of PEP and PrEP. We offer TGNB services, HIV care, women's health. Health outreach teams, we call it our hot department for our kiddos, as well as a mobile unit for medical needs. Dental, will be resuming those services soon enough. Care coordination that offers our patients access to food, shelter, legal services, mental health services. And we have three on-site pharmacies, a pharmacy at each location that does free home deliveries through UPS. We are really trying to piece it together here and keep it going to rock out for our community.
1: We have a small, very small <laughs> department that um, works in advocacy, two-person department, but it has gotten a lot done. So I think allocating resources to clinics and health centers in addition to hospitals is really, really important because, you know, the role that we play in preventative care is going to keep people out of hospitals. So making sure that our communities are really strong and in a good position. When the first federal relief package went for hospitals and clinics, clinics got, you know, a ridiculously small percentage of those monies, like enough to pay like You know, one person's salary. It was really not a lot of money. So, you know, things like making sure that clinics are getting the financial resources to do what we need to do is important. And we are planning for the surge, contingency plans for surge, and just focused on what did we learn from the last time, and what can we do differently this time? How can we be better prepared? And how can we be more transparent in what we're doing and communicate better? I feel like that was a really hard part. I mean, for me, it was a hard part. It was just communicating out, like, you know, there was guidance coming from all different directions and trying to suss through all that and um, figure out what we should be following. And, you know, what was like, Keeping our staff as safe as possible and our patients as safe as possible was difficult. So how can we do that better for next time? How can we keep all of our staff fully employed? Because we need everybody. We need all hands on deck for sure. And we're doing a lot of planning for next time and hoping, of course, it doesn't happen again. But sort of waiting at any moment, sort of an homage kind of feeling for sure.
3: Like Laura said, just learning from this first evilness of COVID and just, you know, learning from it, building from it, and strategizing for the next wave and really, really crossing every finger, eye, and toe that we have that it doesn't happen, even though all signs are pointing to it definitely happening again. And just, prepare yourself for the next time and so you're even better at it when it happens. So just building and trying to be much more strong and better for our community and our patients. Being a member of this community, I can tell you firsthand experience. I completely empathize with those of our patients who had not been able to receive services or had to wait on services because going to an ER or outside urgent care facility, they're not always the most understanding. I've been turned away personally going to certain urgent care facilities. Instead of going in for any ailment, you find yourself in a position to have to explain yourself. If you're asked about your sexual experiences, if you are possibly pregnant. If you say no, I've had facilities say, well, there's always a possibility when you then have to explain to them that it's not a possibility for you then the questions arise or sometimes you're uninvited to be in that space. Sometimes instead of, you know, waiting to be uninvited to be in a space, you just don't go because you, you don't want to be in a position to seek assistance and find yourself explaining who you are and why you are the way you are, you know, telling them this is my wife and they stress the point of this is your friend or make it that you're uncomfortable filling out paperwork. You know, for our patients, I completely empathize with the way things had to close, as it were, you know, the limited Availability of services or a space where they can come in to be themselves or just be comfortable because there really isn't many other places. Working in the medical field, in the nursing department, I can honestly tell you right now I don't have a primary care doctor because I've gone through so many experiences where I'm either not invited in that space or I'm uncomfortable to be in that space. I'm questioned, sometimes ridiculed. I've had Bible verses thrown at me. So, being a member of this community, I definitely am proud to be a part of our community health center that's going out of our way to open as many appointment availability for our patients, as many as we can within the pandemic to try to meet the services and meet the needs of our community because there isn't many places for us to go, not without leaving completely sad or angry or just feeling as if you're unwanted or don't belong there, you know? It's a really upsetting and difficult topic because there's not many places you can go to shop for a primary care provider or a place where you can feel accepted is very challenging, even in such a diverse
1: place like New York it still has its challenges. The fact that in 2020, there's such a still a huge need for an LGBTQ specific health center just, you know, says a lot. Fooling ourselves if we think there's not a need still, you know, definitely is. We were previously closed to new patients for years. We have not really been, except for a small degree open to new patients and the wait time was long. And so we opened a a site during the pandemic, which is in Brooklyn, which had been in the planning stages for probably 10 years. So we opened it and were able to take new patients and schedule new patients. And it's, you know, clearly there's, like I said, still a need and I'm hopeful about that.
3: That is the one great takeaway I can honestly say. You know, since COVID's been going on, we have so much more open availability for our locations for our patients. I've been able to have such great conversations with people who, like Laura said, been waiting for years to come on board with us. Who are so excited to receive services. Can't believe they are able to receive services and just to be a part of introducing them to our community health centers being able to hold their hands because it's so difficult finding a place and not being 100% sure about what you'll be able to receive, what's not possible, what insurance covers, and just being able to be there for those patients and, you know, just guide them through it. Sometimes listen to their experiences with COVID and everything they've been through and just providing that security blanket for them. So that's the one takeaway that has been amazing, being able to open up for so many people who have been in need and so grateful to, you know, have services.
0: And be sure to check out part two of our series. We're gonna hear from a nurse practitioner about how the pandemic has affected healthcare delivery for farm workers in the Connecticut River Valley. And then for some broader perspective, we'll get a sense of how community health centers are Often overlooked when it comes to emergency preparedness resources, and how national public health organizations like ours are working to build that support. Special thanks to Laura Comstock and Simi Phillips for taking time to talk with us. And for more about our various initiatives and current outreach efforts, visit us online at paactioncoalition.org. And you can always follow us on social media at paaction. Support for this podcast comes from the Center to Champion Nursing in America, which is a joint initiative of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, AARP, and the AARP Foundation. Special funding for this episode came from the National Network of Public Health Institutes through a cooperative agreement with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Stephanie Marudas of Covinda Media is our producer, and we had production assistance from Brad Linder. I'm Sarah Hexham Hubbard of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. Thanks for joining us.